Would you please join me in prayer? God, you are good and we thank you for the kind ways that you lead us. We are grateful for this season of worship, for the prayers and the songs, for the chance to greet friends in your name. Lord, as we explore now the the words that have been read this morning, we pray humbly but boldly that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that are tender that will receive your word. Give us feet, Lord, that will walk quickly to do your will. And make our hands strong that our work in this world would be your work in this world. This is our prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we say together, amen and amen. Dr. Garland, it's great to see you. And it was wonderful to be invited by Dr. Tucker to come and preach here today. I have nothing but gratitude in my heart for this wonderful place. Truett Seminary changed my life. I came here because of David Garland. I met him over a decade ago in Jackson, Mississippi. And I said, I want to go to the school where, where he works. And I got a lot more from Truett Seminary than a piece of paper with my name on it and some free coffee cups. You getting free coffee cups yet? You have some free coffee cups? Cherish them. (laughs) I got some mentors for life and some friends for life. And I got a theological base camp for my ministry. And so I come here today to say thank you. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for doing what you do. The students that are here... I love you as a group. I love what you symbolize. I I love what you mean to the world. The ones of you I know I like. I believe in you. And I'm proud of you. And I sort of view myself as your big brother. I'm not old enough to be your father. But I'm old enough still to be a big brother to you. So to people that I'm grateful for and to people that I look at as sisters and brothers... I come today to talk about worship because that's what I've been invited to talk about. And so for a few moments, I want to talk about the importance of the pulpit and the table. If you look in that window up there, you see the third one right up there? You see that pulpit? I lay my Bible on that pulpit every Sunday morning. That pulpit is called the B.H. Carroll Pulpit. Now... This is the first pulpit I've ever been associated with that's had a name. That's sort of a weird deal. I'm not going to lie to you about that. One thing it means is that the church I'm privileged to serve is very, very old. And it has some history. And some history that's mingled with the history of this place. But that's the pulpit I work from every week. It's positioned in that window in between a prophet... And the Pentecostal occurrence. And that's where it ought to be. The pulpit deserves a central place in worship and in ministry. You don't have to place a pulpit in the center of your room to know intuitively as a minister that the pulpit is important. 
my friend Chuck Treadwell is the rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. I was down there with him on Ash Wednesday. We were drinking Dr. Peppers in his office and talking about life and ministry. And Chuck said something to me that I think is important. He said, Matt, on Sunday morning, you better be ready to bring it. Now that sounds Anglican, doesn't it? You better be ready to bring it. It's important. But preaching has fallen on hard times. Not long ago, I was having breakfast with a man in this room. I won't call his name. And we were talking about preaching. And he said, when I was in seminary, he said, we had three professors of pastoral care and one professor of preaching. And I said, well, that was the era, meaning the season of time. And without flinching, he said, and it was the error, as in the baseball deflected off of my glove, trickling into the outfield, and the guy got on first when he didn't deserve to be there. And it was the error. In the generation that preceded me, preaching was sick and nigh unto death. But there's been a little bit of a revival of that. And I'm proud. In this school, there are wonderful professors of preaching. And, and in my prayers, I thank God for them and the work they're doing with you. In our church, we're creating some space for seminarians to have an opportunity to preach. Sometime their first sermons outside of a classroom setting. And I sit there week after week with a heart that's filled with gratitude. And as I sit there, I'm also convicted and stirred and challenged and encouraged, broken and put back together because what you guys are doing, you girls are doing, is you're preaching the word of God and that's what it does. It breaks us down and builds us up. So there's a renewing of preaching in our time, but there is still a gulf between where we are and where we can be. And there's still some room to work on the pulpit. I think a lot about this, and I wonder, what are the reasons? Well, I think there are two reasons why preaching is not where it needs to be. Number one, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. I mean, you really don't sound cool when you tell people you're a preacher. Think about it. Those of you who preach, when someone asks, what do you do, sir? You might say, I'm a pastor, or a minister, or I'm a this, or I'm a that. Rarely does anyone say, I'm a preacher. Those of you who are professors and preach, you've got, a, you've got a little advantage here because you say, I'm a professor, which means I spend my life doing important things like studying loom weights at Timna and stuff like that. But I'm a preacher. We want to load our pipes and smoke them and drink weird coffee and read good books and maybe write a few. But preaching... That's foolishness. But it's God's foolishness. And it's worthy of our time. It's worthy of our lives. Another reason, and this one's probably more important, is that the results of preaching are seldom seen quickly. Now, some of you are so green to this, you don't believe me. Because after your sermon is through, you get lots of affirmation. I used to think that meant they got it and they cared and I did a good job. 
I became a pastor when I was 22 years old. And for the first couple of months, I thought I was the greatest thing the world's ever seen. Because week after week after week, these wonderful people would file out of our little sanctuary. And they would say to me things like, Pastor, you really nailed it today. They would say, Pastor, you stepped on my toes today. They'd call me Brother Matt. I have a friend who's trying to climb the ministry ladder. He said he just wants to go to a place where they don't call him brother anymore. Whatever that means. He said, Brother Matt, you stepped on my toes. And I learned all the preacher gibberish. And I would say, well, I must have missed because I was aiming at your heart. And, and for a while there, for a while there, I thought they were telling the truth. But after a little while, I began to discover I could have stood in that box and I could have read from the Communist Manifesto or the Book of Mormon and talked about how orangutans eat oranges and they would have still said to me, Brother Matt, you stepped on my toes today. Am I lying? No, I'm telling you the truth. And so I said, I can't count on this anymore. So what, what, else, what are my other barometers of change? What do I look at? What do I see? And then there's stuff all in front of your eyes as a preacher that just breaks your heart because people come to church and they're tired and many of them are elderly and half of them are medicated. And so after the music is over, they start to swirl and, and they fall asleep a lot. And I've seen a lot of people fall asleep uh, as I've preached. In that little church in Monticello, Mississippi, we were on the banks of the Pearl River and the Fair River and the Bear Creek. When you're, when you're surrounded by water like that, you're in a swamp. And we were in this little swamp church. And right there, right where you're sitting, a woman named Alice Dale Clyburn sat every single week. And Alice Dale was a big woman. She was girthy. And every week she sat next to her 13-year-old grandson whom she brought to church. And I saw her do that head thing one day. And I knew it was going to happen. She just fell across him and onto the floor. Boom. These were the days of the Toronto blessing. I thought we should play it off as some type of revival phenomenon and try to get the crowds up. But I knew that wouldn't work. Everybody was so kind, they just went on with worship like nothing ever happened. In that same church, there was a little girl who, who sat back there where Robert Creech is sitting. And she had problems with her adenoids and she was narcoleptic. She was nine years old. This little girl, this is how country we were. When, when she was nine years old, she drove a Ford F-150 pickup truck to Bible school. By herself, got out, came in, nobody raised an eyebrow. This little girl, because she had narcolepsy and adenoid problems, she would fall asleep in church and she would do it regularly and she had this high-pitched whistling snore. One day she was doing that. Odell Bowles, who sits right back there where Lindsey Swain is, he started digging in his ear. He thought his hearing aid had malfunctioned. And uh, he kept digging, and he pulled it out. Charlie, you've done this. Pulled it out and started digging with it with a, with a nickel, and it, it didn't work. And so finally he just yelled out a profanity and dropped it on the pew and walked out. Again they, were, again, they were kind people, and they didn't bat an eye. So you see stuff like this. I, I preach and our sermons are broadcast on television, so periodically I get some hate mail. And, uh, and one came, signed from, I won't say his name because he may be in the room, uh, from Bell County. Like Francis of Assisi, he was this guy from Bell County. And, uh, and he gave six months of reasons why I was the worst preacher God had ever made. And then he said, and look at the people when they pan with the camera. They look like they're asleep and they look like they're ready to leave the room. And I wanted to write back and say, they're on drugs and they're old and they're tired. Cut me some slack. 
But I've developed an Abner McCall sort of posture about these types of people. And I just say stuff like, you may be right. But you see things that discourage you as a preacher. And rarely do you see immediate results. And we live in a world that loves immediate results. We're microwave people. And preaching is not a microwave thing. And so we, we put it down the list of things that are important as a minister. But my encouragement to you, young emerging preachers, is swing the hammer. On my desk there's a biography of Hank Aaron, one of my favorite baseball players. I'm a Braves fan. And the title of his biography is, I Had a Hammer. My father's a carpenter and he grew up singing this little hippie ditty. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning. Will you have a hammer as preachers? You should swing it. B.H. Carroll said, smite with God's word and hard hearts will break. Fountains of living water will flow forth from the granite bosom. Kindle the fire, heat up that furnace, smite the ore, melt the soul. Where did he get this crazy idea that the, that the word of God proclaimed was a hammer? He stole it from Jeremiah who swiped it from God who says, Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Many of you have a fire that's shut up in your bones and you have a hammer, so swing it. First thing they did after Pentecost is they preached this foolish, crazy thing. Pentecostal grace invaded the earth and they went about preaching. Worship needs a renewed pulpit. We need preachers that will swing the hammer. We need people that will break us down and build us back up in the image of the Trinity. So pay attention to your professors. They're good here. Listen to them. They have much to say. I would add to what they have to say about preaching this. I think the most important thing about preaching is, you want to hear it? Have something to say. Bill Austin is a member of our church. For a while he was the chaplain at Baylor. He pastored Baptist and Methodist churches for about a thousand years. And I, and I enjoyed talking to Bill. He said when he was a young pastor in Texas, it was a time when you had to have two revivals a year or they would send you to another place. And he, he was obligated to nurture these revivals. And he had Carlisle Marnie come up from Austin. And the first day of the revival, Carlisle Marnie said to him, Bill, I'd like to have some tapes of your sermons. And so this young pastor gave a handful of tapes to Carlisle Marnie. Who I envisioned listened to them as he was drinking scotch after those worship services were over. Because that's how he rolled. And so he preached all week long. And at the end of the week after he'd preached, after he'd listened to those cassette tape sermons. He went into Bill Austin's office and he said to him, young man, you have a wonderful voice. You have a great delivery. The structure is sound, but you don't have a beep thing to say. 
Now, I'd have gone ahead and said that. I've heard Will Willimon cuss in this pulpit, but the difference between Will Willimon and me is Sherry Snowden, my mother. If she heard I cuss in the pulpit, she'd come and slap me in the back of the head. She's a wonderful woman. She'd probably do it to the good bishop from Alabama as well. But Marnie had a point. You've got to have something to say. And where do you get something to say? In the prayer closet. In the study. Friends, around the table. As you share life and you lead God's people. The pulpit matters. But so does the table. That pulpit came as a two-piece set. It came with a little communion table about this big. That little table was lost to our church for over three decades. Somewhere along the line, someone said, we need a bigger communion table. We need a flashier communion table. So a bigger one was purchased. And the table that went with that pulpit was placed in a basement room, you know, down there next to the, the musical things and the buckets of paint. You know, those, those Roman robes and all that stuff people bring out at Easter. The fake palm fronds, all that. It went into one of those basement rooms. And one day someone in the church said, we've got all this junk cluttering the upstairs and we got all that old junk down there. We need to put our new junk down there and throw our old junk away. So let's go clean out that basement. So they gathered up a group of guys and a few pickup trucks and they went down into that basement and they started throwing the old junk away to make new for the new junk. One of the men who was part of that cleanup was named Bill. And Bill, as he was throwing things out, came upon this old table, weathered and worn, discarded. But he recognized underneath all of that decay something beautiful. Bill, by trade, is a woodworker. He has a shop on LaSalle. And he said, I can't throw this out. I can't in good conscience throw this away. I'll take it to my shop and I'll put it in my shop for safekeeping. And he went and he took that table, that little communion table to his shop. And Bill, during a season of church crisis and personal crisis, left the church. Walked away for 25 years. Not long after we got there, Bill and his wife began to visit again. They just sniffing around to see if it was safe and if it was okay because they had this hunger to worship again. And they had some old friends up there. And after a while, Bill and his wife rejoined our church. It wasn't long after that that he called me and he said, Matt, I've got this, this piece of furniture in my shop that I want you to see. Come down and see it. And I went down there and there was the table that matched that pulpit. And it looked terrible. They said, man, I work with wood every day of my life. I want to restore this table for the church. Would you be interested? And I said, let me pray about it, Bill. I said, yeah, absolutely. How wonderful would that be? And so he went to work and he put that table back together. And now we rest the cup and the bread on that restored table. Friends, in our churches, not only do we need to renew the pulpit, but we need to renew the table. To rediscovering a place where we meet with God and one another.
It's a place that calls us to service and to leadership. There are really only two options when it comes to church life. We can feed one another or we can eat one another. This is what Paul said. We are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Only two options. We feed one another or we devour one another. No third opportunities. The church needs a renewed table. The table sits in the middle of our rooms and it calls us to remember Jesus and his sacrifice. And it screams at us to follow him in the cruciform life. The table says, do this, do everything in remembrance of me. For a short period of time, I was an associate pastor at a church in Mississippi, one of those old downtown white column churches. I went there for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was I wanted to experience church staff from a staff member's perspective. I didn't want to be in that position looking across the table at someone and not knowing what it feels like. I knew too many pastors like that, and they were far too hard to live with. And I didn't want to be one of them. But I tell you what, it was hard to take a place in worship after about a decade on the other side of the communion table. To listen to someone preach. What made it worse is this guy had retired at full pay about five years before I got there. And every sermon began by going to the filing cabinet and getting an old sermon That's about the sermon equivalent of eating ramen noodles out of styrofoam that had been microwaved. It was painful. He was a good man, but that was painful. And I was on the other side of this table, and I was miserable. And one day I looked at the table, and I saw that word me. And I'm no mystic. I'm the last person in this room who'd walk a labyrinth. I'm I'm not that kind of person. But if I ever had an impression from the Holy Spirit in my life, it was at that moment when I saw the word me. And this is basically it. This is the paraphrase of it. Matt, you're an idiot. Since it was coming from God, it also had, you are my beloved son and who I'm well pleased. But oh, you're an idiot. This stuff is not about you. It's about me. And a new lightness entered my life, a new joy, a new vitality for worship. We need to come to the table in worship and serve each other in Jesus' name and recognize that all of this is about Christ and Christ crucified. We get something to say here when we handle the bread and wine here, when we feed and we're fed. But for me, the table also speaks to the importance of leadership. It's important to remember that the first real fight that happened in church happened around the table. And people went from eating food to eating one another, biting and devouring one another. 
What brought healing to that situation? Godly leadership, which is also an act of worship. I often hear seminary students, whom they're friends of mine, speak about leadership sometimes as if it's some kind of unholy thing. Something you have to do, the price of the ticket in order to do all the stuff you like doing. But when we read the Bible, we begin to realize that leadership itself is an act of worship. It can free God's people to do the work of God in the earth when it's done humbly and with a servant's heart. The table is an occasion to lead because we love God and his people. I was introduced to Miroslav Volf by this school. Many of you have read Exclusion and Embrace, some of his other books. My personal favorite is After Our Likeness. It's about church and being the body. And this is what he says to leaders. He says, commensurate with the measure to which the charismata are given to a person... No one is to be coerced into activity. These gifts are to be acknowledged, vivified, and employed in service to the church and the world. The task of leaders is first to animate all the members of the church to engage in their pluriform charismatic activities and then to coordinate these activities. Second, leaders are responsible for a mature church that is called to test every manifestation of the Spirit. They ran into a problem. They ate each other over it. And leadership came to play. And said, oh, among this group of people, there's some gifts and abilities and passions. There's some experiences. There's good people full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith who can help us out. Hey, hey, y'all figure out who those people are. Let's organize this thing. Let's come together over this. They began to lead. And it pleased the people of God. And the mission of God went on. Godly leadership brought them out. Took them to a new place. And that's what it will do for us. So don't be smug. Don't cast it aside as something that only pragmatic fundamentalists do. Just do it right. You are leaders. And you are worshipers of God. And as worship is renewed in our day, for us as leaders, it will be renewed around the table and the pulpit. Around preaching. Around service and pastoral care. Around leadership. I pray that God will stir your hearts. And strengthen your spirits. It would be a privilege to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for these friends in ministry. I pray that you bless them. That you send them into their classes. With a sense of purpose and passion. We thank you for the pulpit and the table. We thank you for your invitation to follow Christ. Lord, we plan to do that. And the strength you provide. Amen.